So good morning, everyone. Um, firstly, I'm very pleased to be part of this event. Thanks to Professor Perkis for the invitation. Um, since around 1999, I've been conducting research into the archaeology of counter-witchcraft, often referred to as apotropaic objects and symbols. My research into this began through looking at early modern examples in the UK, but it quickly became evident that the same or similar practices occur all over the world and in virtually every era. Um, in this discussion, though, I'm keeping the objects typically to those encountered um, from the 17th to the 19th century in England. So, among the conclusions I've reached over the years is that people perceive magic and religious forces as happening mostly on an invisible level, and that there are several ways that humans could manipulate or interact with those magical forces. So, for example, someone who was seen as a witch was thought to have some innate control over these forces, Someone with knowledge of magic could access these forces through rituals or symbols. Um, of course, we did get combinations of those as well. And things which could be killed or were killed or were considered dead were also active on this level. And there is also some overlap with the idea of ghosts and fairy lore here as well. Um, so those ideas deal more with the non-religious end of the spectrum, but the clergy and religious rites could also interact and be effective on that level. So if you could imagine being a lay person living in a basic home at a time when fear of witchcraft was high, and there could be other fears around the dead, the fairy, or other living humans causing you real harm, you would need to take action to ensure that the people living in your home were safe, that your animals were safe, and that your property was secure. Um, I would argue that for the majority of people uh, during this period, um, the 17th to 19th centuries, um, belief in the supernatural was so normal that it wouldn't even be described as a belief, um, as everyone was so immersed in it to various degrees. Um, at some point since then, and with very different experiences for different people in different parts of society, we've transformed from this immersed state into a state where our heads are largely above the waters of the supernatural, so the majority of us consider it very differently now. Um, so security in the home um, against perceived dangers, whether supernatural or physical, was to people who were immersed in this world just security. At some point since then, and um, excuse me, I've just uh, repeated myself. So, so this is why um, in some churches uh, we have coffers that uh, don't just carry enormous iron locks on them, but they also uh, carry marks on them. Yep. So basically, people were considering security as one whole thing, not just physical, not just supernatural. So an example here is from a coffer in Spetchley in Worcestershire. So this one has, you may be able to see, many attempts at inscribed circles on the front of the coffer. Now, because it's basically a, an axe cut plank, um, it's very difficult to, to inscribe circles on it, but there's been numerous attempts at putting circles on it. And also on the top, we also have this very faint, uh, what we call a Marian mark, um, which is only actually visible through raking light. So we get these symbols like circles, like Marian marks, but we also get daisy wheels. So I'm just going to explain what that is. So a, a daisy wheel is um, formed by drawing a circle, then putting the tip of the compass on the circle and drawing another circle. Where they intersect, you then draw yet another circle until you've gone all the way around the original circle and you end up with a six-petal design. Now, this symbol in particular appears to have been used for security um, a lot in the UK. Now, when you look at that symbol throughout the world, like in Romania, in the USA, in Germany, and even in Russia, um, what we find is that this symbol actually dates back to at least 600, 1600 BC, and it's usually um, considered to be an ancient solar symbol. So the idea with the daisy wheel is that it's providing protection through the light of the sun. 
Um, I tend to refer to it as the daisy wheel because that's the term that was in use when I first started researching it about 20 years ago. But it is also known as a hexfoil rosette and the New Age community tend to refer to it as the flower of life. Um, in England, we can find this symbol integrated into Norman Romanesque and later medieval decorative schemes, but it is also applied as graffito for security. So this particular example is um, 12th century Norman Romanesque part of a tympanum. And you can see that at the bottom of the slab, there is a daisy wheel protecting the portal there. But then much later here in 18th century plaster at St. Swithin's Church in Worcester, which is where I'm doing some work at the moment, we've got another one um, inscribed next to a window aperture. And what we've got here is four rotated daisy wheels, one on top of the other, uh, protecting this aperture in the, medieval, in the medieval tower, but it's in 18th century plaster. So circles are also um, a proto-solar symbol, if you like. They're the most simple of all solar symbols. And we often find those as well, singly or overlapping on buildings, around entrances. Um, so for example, especially church, where I'm showing you that font earlier on, there are many overlapping circles around the main entrance to that church. Now, when we talked about Marian marks, um, what we're really talking about is invocations to the Virgin Mary using M's and V's, which can be scratched onto surfaces. And it seems that she was being invoked to protect these places. Um, so a really famous example, apart from that um, church coffee you saw earlier on, this is um, inside Prince Arthur's Chantry in Worcester Cathedral. And um, he would think that having a Chantry chapel in a cathedral was enough security for your mortal remains, but but no, someone has inscribed Marian marks in it as well. Now, with this one, the M marks, you can see that the, the arms of the M taper away. And this is exactly as um, the M for Maria would appear on the palm of your hand. If you look at the palm of your hand, you'll see that exactly the same M, or certainly it is on my hand anyway, and the arms taper away in exactly the same fashion. And we often find this mark um, as a Marian mark. Um, indeed, it exists on the head of an effigy next to the cathedral, amongst many others. Um, but then we also find the opposite, which is like an upside down pair of V's, a bit like we saw on the coffer in Spetchley, which could be Virgin of Virgins or basically um, it's the Virgin Mary. But either way, you look at it up or down, um, it's V and M, which is the monogram for the Virgin Mary. So the reason I'm talking about these marks, I'm not talking about death just yet, is that I think that um, some people think that where these marks were made, there was actually a sort of ritual scraping away or killing a part of the surface, which could leave a mark on the other side, as it were. Um, so this idea of security in an age where magical forces are normal is why, for example, many buildings in this period can be found to contain, for example, a dried cat wedged into a thatch, or stuck between two lath and plaster panels, or why broken knife blades can be found tucked above a window or a door lintel, or why there are deep burn marks on a chimney lintel, an old shoe stuck up a ledge inside a chimney or a witch bottle inverted beneath the hearth containing ritually killed pill pins or nails. So dried cats. This particular example is from Eckington in Worcestershire. I'm just going with local examples at the moment because I know them very well. Um, it's thought to be from 17th century and it was found in between some layers of thatch in a little cottage in that village. Um, they're common finds in historic buildings in England ranging in date from the 16th century to the early 20th. Um, they could, in fact, predate the 16th century, but the fact that they're often inserted into buildings later than the construction date makes them difficult to date without expensive radiocarbon dating, and uh, the remains can be in various states of decay. This particular cat has been returned to the thatch, uh, and the owner was very insistent upon that, um, minus a few flakes, which we couldn't <laughs> salvage, I'm afraid. Okay, so... Um, 
So theories have ranged from vermin scarers to foundation sacrifices over the years, but um, rats quickly learn to ignore things like this and foundation sacrifices normally happen when work commences on the site at the ground level. Um, one other theory reiterated to me by no less than Terry Pratchett was that by giving a life to the house, um, it then won't take a life later on from somebody else by, by falling down. Um, but if that was the case, we would expect them all to be inserted at the start of the building's life, which is not the case. And also we find many of these cats, um, for example, um, concealed in the ceilings near to entrances to buildings. Um, so that implies that they are um, placed there as a ward or protector. And this is what leads me to think that cats were killed and deposited so that they would act as little spirit guardians, protecting in death as they did in life for their humans, but perhaps being effective against lesser evils. So if you imagine the idea that someone could cast a spell on you, maybe the cat is there helping ward off that, stopping it from entering the building. So we also find lots of old shoes or dead shoes, um, which appear to have been used as decoys in buildings. Um, there are well over 2,000 examples of concealed shoes being discovered in buildings. Um, shoes used to be considerably more expensive uh, than they are now and would be repaired over and over again until eventually being discarded. Um, <clears throat> when people did conceal them, it was usually a single shoe and usually very well worn, or as I said, dead. Um, the discarded shoe would be unique to the wearer's foot and thereby contain some of the essence of the owner. And the idea appears to be any harmful forces entering the building to attack that person could be fooled into attacking the shoe instead of the person. Um, there is also coupled with that this idea of a 14th century legend of an unofficial English saint called John Sean, who was from Buckinghamshire, and he was reputed to have cast the devil into a boot. Um, the pilgrimage to his shrine was incredibly popular, in fact, second only to Thomas Becket for a period of time. And so pilgrim badges uh, with images of him and art about him existed in many churches throughout the country and sort of popularised this idea that um, shoes or footwear could be associated with trapping evil. Um, so you can see here in this pilgrim badge, there's a clear image of him with the devil trapped in a boot. And so we think that um, <clears throat> the combination of this idea that you can use a shoe as a decoy, coupled with this idea that you could trap evil in, a, in footwear, led to the popular, popularization of this um, practice. So one other type of uh, object we find is witch bottles. These are possibly the most famous type. Um, they were usually created inside uh, Thelamines or Bartman stoneware, which usually buried and the pins and nails found within have usually been deliberately bent specifically for the purpose of inclusion in the bottle so again we've got this kind of ritual killing of objects um, so in this image you can see the contents of a bottle that was found in Greenwich in London and is now on display I believe in the Maritime Museum there um, and it would appear to be the case that uh, the idea was that any harmful forces coming down your chimney um, could be fooled by this anthropomorphic bottle you know, filled with your own urine, toenails, you know, with the, basically the, the essence of the victim, that, um, that they, it would attack that instead of you and thereby become impaled and trapped on the ghostly pins and nails within. 
So there was another type of urine bottle which was heated to remove witchcraft at the time. Um, this was written about in several pamphlets in the late 17th century and later. But there are differences between this practice of boiling bottles and the ones that were buried and which we find in archaeological contexts. So we also find horse skulls. Um, many of these have been found in properties in England um, and we find them a lot of them in Wales and Ireland as well. Uh, there's a late 19th century account from East Anglia which clearly shows a horse skull being needed for a foundation ritual where it was placed on a stake and had beer poured over it before um, the cutting of the ground could commence the building of a chapel. Um, horse skulls have also been found within structures screwed to the underside of floors, sometimes closer to the hearth. Um, when defleshed, horse skulls are fearsome looking things used in many folk dances in England and Wales, such as the Murray Lloyd. Um, and I feel that horse skulls were seen to have a hybrid role as both foundation sacrifice, um, a fearsome creature warding off lesser evil, combined with the sensitivity and alertness we associate with the horse. Um, they can sleep, they can sleep with the eyes open, um, so people associated them with being very vigilant. Um, <coughs> there is also some debate about the acoustic role of horse skulls in some of the earlier literature studying them. Um, but this is my own horse skull, and I'm a musician. And I just would like to declare that my horse skull has not improved the quality of my guitar playing at all. So I slightly dispute that theory. Um, we also get um, a lot of burn marks um, when we're talking about marks. <clears throat> this particular example is from a lovely house called Flankirk Flower in Wales, which is not far from Merthyr Tidville. And this particular uh, roof truss in the little dormer window directly above the entrance has over 100 deliberate burn marks on it. There are no fixing holes associated with any of these marks to indicate that they were used as lamps or anything. These are deliberately applied burn marks on the timbers. And we know, we've always known that these were deliberately done, but um, in 2016, some experimental archaeology was done, which was published in the Vernacular Architecture Journal, which shows that it takes up to 20 minutes to make one of these marks, is where you burn the wood, the carbon layer forms, which quickly prevents any further burning. You then have to scrape that carbon layer away, and then the burning can commence, and then a new carbon layer forms, and you repeat the process. And so you end up with quite a deep teardrop-shaped or flame-shaped mark. Now, what I think is going on with these is that um, essentially we're ending up with kind of a, a mirror image of the candle flame on the other side, on this magical plane of existence that we were talking about earlier on. But there is now a candle flame. There's, there's a candelabra on this um, roof truss, would be my opinion. And that this is preventing darkness from lurking in that area <coughs> on the other side, should we say. Um, right. Where have we got to? So here's another example um, from Cockwatchers, which is a cafe in Worcester. Um, and again, you know, once you've got your eye in with these burn marks, you start seeing them everywhere. Um, so highlighting the presence of marks and objects like this in historic properties can enhance a, visiting, a visitor's experience by giving them a feeling of connection with um, magical forces and the past, and possibly also giving them a healthy dose of what I would call the heebie-jeebies um, so most house owners who find these objects in their own homes become considerably more paranoid and fearful of the supernatural and often don't want the objects to leave their house. Um, I already mentioned Pancake Flower in South Wales. I'd say that's a really good example of a building which um, <coughs> makes use of its um, magical past. And the uh, people who steward that house are happy to show people the marks in that house as well as all the objects which are on display when you first arrive. Um, so I often help people interpret discoveries within historic buildings, both secular and religious, and would be happy to help anyone who would like to look at examples. Um, and that's, that's me done, that's my talk done. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you very much for listening.